Strong bodies, kind hearts, unstoppable minds. You're listening to Strong Girls Pod, where strong women share their stories to inspire strong girls. Welcome to episode three of Strong Girls Pod, brought to you by WIS. Today, I will be chatting with five-time Winter Olympian, Olympic gold medalist, and world champion in cross-country skiing, Keegan Randall. We talk about her process of goal setting and how to divide big goals up into smaller chunks in order to make the journey way more important than the result. We also jump in on her mindset practices, both in and out of training and race days, and also touch on some of the quirky traditions of the U.S. ski team. Keegan is a trailblazer, a leader, and the absolute definition of an inspiring woman. I can't wait for you to listen to her. But before we jump in, we are going to hear from our amazing sponsor, WIS. Going back with our WIS tips series. Tip number three, build good habits, build a routine, and start planning early. So tip number two, having that steady and regular income leads to really building a habit. If you build a habit around having that income, having a routine, planning around that money, it's going to lead you to tip number four, which is save in buckets. Save in a short-term, a medium-term, and a long-term bucket. So short-term bucket can be you're buying yourself something for your birthday or you're buying a friend something for their birthday in, in a week or two right? That's a short-term bucket. A medium-term bucket is something later on. Depending on your age, that may mean in six months is a medium-term bucket. And a long-term bucket helps you really conceptualize what your goals are later on in life. It's going to help you, you know, align that bucket around what do you want to be? What do you want to be later? Like, what's your plan? Have a plan. Do you want to, you know, do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to medical school? Do you want to become a journalist? Do you want to become a veterinarian? It, it, you know, it helps you. You can talk about your money um, in the context of, of what you want to be. And that's what the long-term bucket really is for. I love it. And filling those buckets up and correct me if I'm wrong here, but filling up these buckets, it doesn't mean that you have to divide them up equally in each moment. Absolutely. It just it just means that you should start thinking about these things and looking at when I was younger, like I had an idea of, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't necessarily have my bucket say like my, the idea that I needed to have a large bucket. Now that I'm out of it, I'm starting to think, okay, down the road, I want to buy a house eventually. And so my long-term bucket, my big large bucket for the long term becomes saving up for a house one day or saving up for a new car or something that's going to come years down the road. And in the short term, it's like saving for stuff like rent and groceries and something that's so like tangible of what I need week by week, month by month. And then exactly. that medium becomes like celebrations or trips or any plans that come outside of my daily, weekly, monthly plan of any added bonus that becomes my medium bucket. App, that's awesome. I love how you're already doing that. <laughs> I don't know if I necessarily thought of it in the aspect of buckets, but the second you said it, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I do this. Mm -hmm. 
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Strong Girls Pod. I'm your host, Charlie Ekstrom, and we are here on episode two with Keegan Randall. She is an Olympic skier. She's a gold medalist, but beyond that, she's an incredible human being, and we're so excited to have this conversation with her. So, Keegan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I uh, love being part of this squad. It's awesome. We got, we've got a pretty good little strong girl squad around and um, it's fun that we get to highlight the people who make it all happen behind the scenes. And you're somebody who we're really excited to have in this conversation. So to start, I think that I gave you a little tiny bit of background, but your story is a little bit deeper than just you're an Olympic skier. Would you mind to start here, giving us a little bit of your background and your story, kind of your career spanning through why you ended up choosing your sport? What was kind of your journey growing up? What did you study? What did you do? What you're doing now? All of it. Give us it all. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be on here for the next couple hours. No, um, <laughs> you know, it's really fun at this point, you know, being post of my competitive career and being able to look back and really think about all the little things that help make me uh, an athlete and uh, develop me as a person. And so my background started uh, in Alaska. Um, we moved from Salt Lake where I was born up to Alaska at age three. So my whole memorable life was growing up in the mountains in a big outdoor playground. And I was born into an athletic family. Um, and on my mom's side, I have an aunt and uncle that, were in, that went to the Olympics uh, as cross country skiers. So I grew up hearing their stories and, and definitely wanted to follow in their footsteps. Although I have to admit, I did not think cross country skiing was going to be my sport at first. So I was determined to try many other things. And my dad's side of the family um, was also into all sorts of athletics, but he really got into alpine skiing after high school. And so he got me on alpine skis the day after my first birthday and then was taking my brother and sister and I up to the mountains all the time. So I really thought I was gonna be an alpine skier for a while. That was really my first Olympic ambitions. And so I did that kind of through eighth grade. Um, around that time, there were a couple of Alaskans that had won Olympic medals. And so it was really inspiring to have powerful role models coming from my hometown. And then in high school, I got really into running. I was playing soccer and all my running friends were going to do cross-country skiing in the winter to stay in shape. And so I started to realize I kind of had to make a choice and, and I didn't have time and resources to do both. So I ended up kind of swaying to cross-country. And then when my running coach moved out of town after my sophomore year, um, I joined a ski program. And within a couple of weeks, I realized that cross-country skiing was actually a pretty neat sport. It really combined a lot of elements that I loved from my other sports. Um, I got to go fast downhill. I got to experience the pure payout of effort from running. And it still had a team component like soccer. Um, and at that point, I also realized that the 2002 Olympics were just three years away. And uh, being a little bit naive, I didn't fully understand what the development pipeline was like for cross country, but I set my goal on making that Olympic team. And after a year after I graduated high school, I, I joined a pro team and I trained full time and ended up making those Olympics. And I didn't ski particularly well in Salt Lake. Uh, 44th was my best place, but it really inspired me uh, watching the medal winners go up on the podium, uh, in particular, a skier from Canada named Becky Scott who I'd gotten to know traveling on the circuit and seeing them stand on the podium really inspired me to go after that someday, despite the fact that no American woman had ever been even top 10 at the Olympics. Um, 
so again, setting big goals, not really understanding it. And so my coach sat me down and showed me the progression I would have to make year over year to actually make that a, a possibility. And the plan was going to be 10 years long. And I'm 19 years old and it's very daunting. But at the same time, I realized while it's a big goal, I can do it in small pieces. And that ended up setting me on a 16 year journey through five Olympics. And uh, in my very last Olympic race, I teamed up with Jesse Diggins, um, my good friend from Minnesota. And we ended up winning a gold medal in the Olympics. And yeah. I finished my career on the highest of high notes. Heck yeah, you went out on top, which is the pretty much coolest thing ever. And also as the first ever, you were saying no US team, ha no, no US woman, no US team ever had ever placed like top 10. And then you guys are the first ever to win a gold. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Correct. I was going to say, I'm pretty positive. Um, this little birdie told me that you guys are kind of the trailblazers for the sport of cross-country skiing in the U.S. And you'd seen these Olympic greats coming. I think that's something that I actually loved hearing about. If you were talking about this culture of greatness that was coming from the Alaskan skiing community, what do you feel like your foundation was to enable you to be able to do what you do. I know you talked about your family. Um, what beyond that? I think that you're talking about all these awesome goals and I'd love to kind of hear more about your process. Yeah, absolutely. I think environment and your support team uh, makes a huge difference. I mean, you can come out as the most strong-willed, independently motivated kid, but if you don't have the right environment to support and support you through the invariable highs and lows um, through sport, then that's what it all takes to, to ultimately make success. So growing up in Alaska, um, I tried a lot of things. I was not, I was good at some things, but I was not so great at some things. Like I tried snowboarding and I could not stand up to save my life. <laughs> my mom was like in fits of laughter watching me because I was so determined I was going to get it. And, you know, so it was, I think it was really important um, to try some things that were challenging. Um, I did all sorts of team sports and uh, I was never the fastest or best player on the soccer team, but I loved the camaraderie of it. And I think my parents had a rule that if I committed to something, and then found out that I wasn't enjoying it. I needed to see it through the season because I'd made the commitment to the team and the coach. But after the season concluded, if I wanted to then move on and try something else, I was free to do so. And I think that was really important because it, I tried cross-country skiing at six years old. And if, if I'd been forced to do it and didn't like it, you know, I don't think I would have ever been able to have the long career that I did. So I was able to dabble with it, go do something else for a while. Um, I also think that I had some amazing coaches along the way who not only taught me how to be a good athlete and proper technique and things like that, but really talked about, um, you know, the power of your mindset, you know, thinking, being a growth mindset, um, really being able to learn from every experience, whether it goes really well or whether it doesn't, um, to how to be patient and persistence through some setbacks. Um, all those things have ended up not only, I mean, have been so crucial in athletics, but then have helped me navigate some of the non-athletic things in my life that have been challenging. And it was all really subtle stuff. Like we, you know, they read stories to us. We had, you know, cool, cool mantras on the wall. Um, so it wasn't like we were doing sports psychology at 10 years old, but all that stuff I was soaking up. And um, I think that really becomes critical um, later on. So yeah. I just, yeah, had an incredible environment. That's Really cool. I love the mantras on the wall from such an early age. I feel like that's something that I've started. Something that my mom and I do is like we are 
little trick that we do back and forth is we get each other shirts with mantras on them. And that's what we've been doing. Like I'm sitting here in a grateful everyday shirt because of the fact that every single day we try to do some sort of little mantra thing back and forth. So he's being like, there's positive mantras that were just kind of there that didn't necessarily force themselves upon us. Like this was just something that we started doing. We had a little poster in our house that said, see the good in all things always. And then all of a sudden it just started becoming this pattern where we'd be like, oh, that shirt's really cute. And so then it became kind of this little trend with us of where we're starting to wear our mantra shirts. And now I come home from breaks or come home and my mom's like, I got us matching grateful shirts or I, and I'm laughing. I'm like, mom, you're going to be, you're going to laugh. Look in my bag right now. And I have two matching shirts with positive mantras on them too. So I love that you're saying that even from an early age, kind of having those mantras, um, helped to develop this kind of growth mindset moving forward, even all the way through your career that spanned a nice five casual five Olympics. I mean, I was sitting here just like, wow, eyes getting bigger with every mention of a new Olympics that you went to um, hearing about it, which is so incredible um, and so cool. Do you think that that came directly from your coaches, the growth mindset? I mean, you said with your parents as well, but that growth mindset, I feel like some people don't necessarily know where the growth mindset comes from, where it takes them. Do you think that that came early from coaches? Do you think that that came from parents or kind of like a combo of both of them for you? I think it comes from a really interesting combo. I think there are, you know, innately patterns in the way you think that that you're kind of born with, Um, but those need to be developed. And so I think early on, my parents were great about just kind of instilling me, you know, watching me come up against a challenge, struggle a little bit, and encouraging me not to just turn around and quit. One of our mantras in our family was Randall's never quit. And so it was just, you know, early on, it was like, you learn to just come into a challenge, lean into it a little bit, give it your best. And so that helped me develop the self-talk and and lean into it. And then uh, along with coaches as well. Um, you know, being very, you know, open and in partnership with my coaches, I think was important. You know, explaining what I was thinking and feeling in addition to the training I was doing was great because then we could have productive conversations about um, things that we could learn, things that we could improve, um, and just not feeling, not being like ashamed of having doubts, of of being, you know, scared of trying something. I think uh, kind of owning that and talking about it um, helped me learn that that was okay and that was part of growth. And um, I have this one story that sticks out in my mind. I think I was four years old and I was going to jump off the diving board or dive off the diving board for the first time. And I stood up there and I was, <laughs> I was really afraid. I don't know if I could do it. And, and my dad was there talking me through it. And then he said, if you dive into the water, I'll give you a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> and suddenly that was like what I needed. And I dove in. I don't think it was a pretty dive. But I did it and I got my Reese's peanut butter cup. And it's like those little things along the way really, really develop the mindset. Totally. (laughs) The little positive reinforcements for trying something new. I think that Reese's peanut butter cups are fully worth it for the dive. Those are absolutely incredible candies. So, I mean, I would probably agree that I think I would dive in for a Reese's peanut butter cup as well. Oh, that's so awesome. I love that story. That's so great. I think hearing about this, hearing how you're going through doubts, hearing how you're working with coaches and like setting goals that kind of embrace your doubts and growing with them. Um, I would love to hear like a little bit more, um, 
for those who are avid Strong Girls listeners, I don't know if you've heard of Keegan's goal setting talk that she did for us, but I would love to hear you kind of take us through a little brief process and idea of your goal setting mindset and process when you're going, when you were going in as an athlete. Well, it's something I learned to do over time, but what ended up serving me really well through athletics and then something I actually used um, when I ended up going through cancer was whether you're taking on a challenge or you're thinking about going after something big, you have to have that kind of lofty end result in mind. And so when it was the Olympics, it was like, wow, I want to win an Olympic medal, something no American woman has ever done before. So that was the big goal. But then my first Olympics, I'm 44th place. Like, how do I go from 44th to the top? So that it was too big of a jump to try to see in one chunk. So with, with the help of my coach, because I think it was important to bring some other people in to help me build this roadmap, we kind of figured out like, okay, First, if we're going to get to that big goal, we're going to need some benchmarks. So what are those benchmarks? Well, one good thing was going to be other, you know, other Olympics, which happen every four years. So I was in Salt Lake in 2002. So then in four years, how much did I want to improve? Well, if I could get to the top 20 in the next Olympics, then maybe top 10 the next Olympics after that, you know, then I, I those are jumps that I can actually see happening over four years. So it's so you take the big chunk and you break it down into a few kind of smaller um, benchmarks. And then you look at each benchmark and you figure out what, what could I actually do each day that gets me closer to achieving that. And so in skiing, you know, that was things like, well, I need to go be able to go faster uphill. So I need to focus my training around doing sprints uphill or I need faster skis. So I need to find a way to, you know, save up money and buy skis. So you could take each of those uh, smaller goals and break it down. And now all of a sudden, you have this nice little list of things you can work on every single day. And so you kind of, you put that big goal out there somewhere, like the sticky on your mirror or the poster or something. So you're, you're in the back of your mind, you're reminded what you're working for, but you're going out every day and you're working on goals that are challenging, but attainable. And as you do those, you, you check them off. And it's amazing how days go by, weeks go by, years go by. And all of that is building this pyramid that's building up. And so for me in my fourth Olympics, that was 12 years after I had made that 10 year plan. So I'm a little bit past, but of course we have to do work with Olympic timing. So I've been putting in the work day after day. I had been having some, uh, you know, breakthroughs. I'd been moving forward. And then I had some years where I actually didn't achieve my goals and I, you know, I could kind of slip backwards, but everything was kind of progressing and progressing. And I came into those Olympics considered the gold medal favorite. And the coolest thing was being out at the course the day before the race and knowing in my heart that I had put in the work and that I had made myself into someone who could actually win an Olympic medal. So I made myself a promise that day that as long as I go out and I ski as hard as I possibly can, you know, I don't let the doubts creep in. I just think about getting to that finish line as fast as I can. If I, if I cross that line and I've given everything, then no matter what the result is, I can walk away satisfied. So I took it away from, I have to win a medal. I have to win a medal to, I want to know that I gave my best effort. And so I went out that day and I skied my heart out and I ended up losing a photo finish by five hundredths of a second. And I actually got eliminated in the quarterfinals um, in the, to get to the gold, you had to do quarters, semis, and finals. And so 
you know, I gave everything and I didn't quite get my goal of winning an Olympic medal in that games. But as I was walking out of the finish area, I remembered that promise I made to myself and I could feel really good that I get, that I had prepared, that I was confident that I took risks. You know, I believed in myself and you know what? I didn't get a goal, but that's okay. And I think now, now that was almost 10 years ago. I can look back at that day and go, you know, yeah, a medal would have been really cool. But knowing that I did everything I could uh, and that I had followed my plan and it had actually put me in a position to win that medal, uh, I think means more than anything. And um, I know when I was a kid, I didn't fully understand that. It was, it was all about the result, about the goal. You had to get it. And if you didn't get it, you know, you felt like a failure. But it's really about the effort you give. And, um, and that's something that someone can never take away from you. And that's what will... I think, linger with you for the rest of your life. So to all the listeners out there, the more you can set your goals, and those are important, but also when you get to that point and you either make it or don't, um, know that it's, it's really about all the work that went into it. And no matter what, if, if, you, if you put the work in, that's, that's the gold medal in my mind. It's all about the little checks on that to-do list, like little by little. And once those little checks are checked off, the last piece becomes, I don't know, like the grounding point, it seems like a little bit. Regardless of what the result is of this, like I've done, I've checked off my goals. I've achieved so much more than just this little point now. It's become so much bigger than just that star on the mirror. It's become this whole thing that I've been able to accomplish. I'm getting goosebumps just hearing this story. Of, I feel like that's such an inspiring reward of going out there, knowing in your heart that you did everything that you could. You ticked off every box that you could to prepare yourself. And even if that result didn't come, like that feeling still did because you did everything you could to get that result. And it may not have come then, but it it could have gone the other way. You could have won that by that 500th of a second. It just wasn't your year that year. And then it was your year in the next one. Uh, would you take me through kind of that process of after that feeling of like knowing that you had done everything you could and knowing that you had worked your tail off to get through all of those check marks on the list? What was that motivation going into your fifth Olympics? What was it like? Kind of how was the journey different? How was it the same? It, it was quite a process um, for me. That's when you have to get really good about kind of your self-talk um, because after an experience like that, when you are feeling a little, it, feeling a little disappointed, and it's okay to be disappointed because you, you put everything into that. But as you kind of stick with the disappointment, you can take that conversation and you can start to pick it apart and kind of realize what was in your control and maybe what was out of your control and then figure out what you want to do with it going forward. And so the interesting situation that I was in is that in my sport, cross-country skiing, we have two techniques. We have skate skiing and we have classic skiing. And we have short events called the sprint and long events. I happen to be good at skate sprints, which is one out of six events that they do at the Olympics. And the sprint flip-flops techniques each games, which means you only get to do a skate sprint once every eight years instead of once every four years. So not winning a medal in Sochi in 2014 meant that if I wanted to go after the individual skate sprint, I was going to have to wait eight more years. And at this point, you know, I'm pretty deep into my career. So at first I was like, well, shoot, like that was my chance. Um, but 
at the next Olympics four years later, there was going to be a team event called the team sprint. It was going to be a two person relay. It was going to be in the skate technique. And I knew we had a really strong team. There's also a second relay event that's for women. And I really wanted to be on that team. So what's interesting is it switched from being an individual goal of wanting to win a medal to wanting to help my team win medals. So that's what really kept me going for another four years. Plus, now I had just put all the work in and it was getting fun. Like I had turned myself into one of the best athletes in the world. I didn't win that Olympic race, but the next week I won the next World Cup and I ended up win winning this thing called the Crystal Globe at the end of the season for being the fastest racer all season. So outside of that one day, it was a very successful season. And so then it was fun to come back the next couple of years and every weekend contest with the best athletes in the world. So I... I wonder actually if not winning a medal in 2014 was a little bit of a gift because it left me hungry. It left me hungry to work with my teammates to try to put ourselves in a position to win medals in the next games. I love that. I feel like too, thinking about it in the perspective of like going from a very individual mindset, going into a team mindset, that's a fun shift. Or in my head, that's a fun shift. I don't know if it was as fun of a shift, but I'd love to kind of hear the difference you said it really well there. Your mindset shifted of, I want to do this. I want to win a medal to, I want to help my team win a medal. What was that process like? Because I feel like you went from a very individually focused sport to like now this introduction of team. How did that change the sport in general? And how did you create a team culture in a sport that's so by nature, completely individual? Like how did you work to create a team culture from something that was so individual before? Well, I have to admit that it was a process that had begun far beyond uh, or far before those Olympics. Um, in high school, I was a part of a, a cross-country running and a cross-country ski team that was very team-oriented. Our, our coach really encouraged us to celebrate the team, trying to win the team championship as much as our individuals. And you know what? It was the funnest team to be a part of. We went out there and we pushed each other and we worked so hard and we, we had so much fun you know, kind of being silly, but we ended up winning three state titles in cross-country running. Casual. And so w when <laughs> I got into, uh, into my more Olympic or U.S. ski team, I naturally like wanted that team environment. But when I first made it to the World Cup, I was the only U.S. woman on the team. And so I realized like, A, I don't think I'm going to be as successful as I want to be by myself. And I'm spending a lot of my life committed to doing this and I don't want to do it by myself. Um, plus, there are relay medals on the table that we should be going after. So I went around and I started encouraging my U.S. Co competitors to to join up with me and to work together um, uh, at U.S. ski team training camps and invited people to come to Alaska and train. And um, we started to get this group that started to come together. And then we had another coach who stepped in and, and really challenged us to not only work together on the snow, but to really become supportive teammates off the snow. He said, you know, we're, we're kind of like a family and that you don't get to necessarily choose your siblings, but somehow you end up learning each other and you learn how to operate as a team. And then you, you know, they've got your back. Um, and again, you can have a lot of fun. So that started to turn into music videos and uh, relay socks. And because the U.S. team, we, we lived together for five months of the year we would go over to Europe and be racing the circuit to a new country every week. So you spent a lot of time with your teammates. 
And so if you could have fun when get get to uh, um, get to know them really well, then it just made it that much that much better. So that team was starting to build up through 2014. And we had actually um, we'd had a World Cup podium in the relay. Uh, Jesse Diggins and I had won the world championships in the team sprint in 2013, just the year before. So I still I, I saw the team goals, but of course that that drive to win the Olympic gold medal in the skate sprint individually was my big thing. So what was cool is because we'd already built that foundation of team, then over the next four years, we just spent a lot of time talking about what we wanted to accomplish as a team in 2018. And we realized that because the level of U.S. skiing had been rising so much um, that we would likely have more women going to the Olympics in 2018 than could actually fit on the relays. So they were going to have to select which four of us or which two of us out of about eight or ten women would be on the team, meaning some would be on the team and some would be on the sidelines. And we knew that everybody wanted to be on those teams, but we talked a lot about how because we were all working together for four years, any success we had, everybody was a part of it. And so we come into the 2018 games and, you know, I had kind of been the, the, the fastest or the team leader in 2014, but by 2018, all my teammates were just as fast as me. And I developed an injury in my foot uh, about a month and a half before the Olympics. And so I had to change my training. I was aqua jogging in the pool um, while all my teammates were racing. And I was kind of freaking out that I was not going to make that Olympic, make the Olympic team or be on the relays. So I, that was where like the, the mindset really came in handy. I just had to remind myself to like literally do what I could every day and just stay hopeful that I was going to recover from the injury in time. And so we come into the 2018 games and uh, my foot is healed up enough. And so I get a start in the first individual race and it doesn't go that, that well, but the end of the race is okay. And so then um, when they announced the four by five K relay, I get a spot. And so I'm just like beyond the moon. Cause I get to be on the team. Um, we ended up finishing fifth. So we didn't get a medal, but it was the best relay result we'd ever had. And then it was down to the team sprint, which is only a two person event. And so 36 hours before the race, they still had not announced which two of us it was going to be. So two nights before the race, I'm sitting in the, in my room in the athlete village with my teammate, Sadie Bjornsson from Alaska. And the coach walks in and you can just kind of tell by the look on his face that they have made their decision. So he goes through this like 10 minute monologue about how they've like, analyzed all these statistics and thought about it, you know, cause they just, they wanted to be like so fair and so right. So at the end of this like drawn out thing, um, he tells us that they've chosen me um, to race with Jesse. So I am getting the best news because I get to go out and race for my team one more time. It's the team sprint, what we've been looking forward to. But at the same time, my teammate sitting next to me just got the news that she is not going to be on the team. And I cannot even imagine what that felt like for her at the time. But her first reaction was to look me dead in the eyes and tell me she believed in me and that she wanted to help. And that was the most amazing show of team spirit I have ever witnessed. Um, and so the next day, Sadie and the, and the rest of our team, we all went out. We did a workout on the course together. Um, the morning of the race, we all went out for a team jog in the athlete village and we did our team dance. Um, and it's just we felt so supported that whole day by our team. So that when Jesse and I were on the snow that night, 
we knew we had everybody, everyone behind us. And when that gold medal happened, uh, even Jesse crossed the finish line uh, 0.19 of a second ahead of Sweden. We just, we jumped up and right away, all the women of the team were right there. And we just went over and had this big hug and um, we all got to celebrate it together. And I, I wish, I wish they gave us eight gold medals because that's really what it took to win it. And all those women played a part in it. Um, and what's so cool is we've all remained really close friends. Like, even though I've, I've been retired like five years now, uh, Sadie retired a couple years ago, like Sadie lives, uh, half a mile from my house and I see her almost every day. Like we're just the great friends and, and a moment like that handled the wrong way could have absolutely destroyed it, but she was such a class person. And, uh, like I said, I mean that, that team, and I think had we not won a medal at those games, we would have all still walked away feeling just so good about our journey, but. Yeah, we got a gold medal to celebrate it. That's not too shabby on the end on the end note there. Wow. I'm trying to not cry. That story is so beautiful. I have full tears in my eyes. That's such a special moment coming from building something so big. Really, you eight were kind of like the trailblazers for that, creating this turning this individual sport into a team sport. I do need to hear about these relay socks that you mentioned at the start of the story. Um, what did they look like? Were they just magic? Um, were they matching? I, I need to hear about the relay socks. <laughs> well, it's a really fun story because we were in the middle of this race series called the Tour de Ski. Um, it's kind of like the Tour de France in that you race like every single day and every, every couple of days you're like moving to a new country. And so... Um, we're in the middle of this. We're driving from one venue to the next, and our coach um, accidentally puts um, unleaded fuel in a diesel tank. <laughs> so <laughs> now we've got to like sit in this town, and we've got to go get the like tank pumped out. So my teammates and I were just kind of like kicking around, killing time. And I walk into this like convenience store in Germany, and it's so random. Like there's like all different things in there, and I happen to notice these socks that are part of a Pippi Longstocking costume. <laughs> And there, one one sock is red and white striped, and the other sock is blue and white striped. And so I just kind of saw those, and I went, "Oh, those look fun." So I grabbed four pairs, and then right next to it there was this pair of pink sequined suspenders. So I was like, "Ah, oh, those look good too." So I grabbed those. And so uh, at the end of the tour to ski, um, we jump in this fun like uh, team sprint like relay, and my friend Liz and I wear the socks, and we win the race. And I mean, it's just like a silly, like just fun thing, whatever. So then that's, um, that's the 2012 season, I think. So then the next year at the world championships in 2013, uh, we, we, we had just started pulling out the socks for relays. So it's 2013. It's the world championship team sprint. Jesse and I win gold. We're wearing the socks. So then all of a sudden it's like, huh, I think there's something to this. So these, these socks start to just become the thing it's like the four the four people that are on the relay get to wear the socks and then the suspenders became like the the thing that either someone got to wear on their birthday or they got to wear them cheering on the sidelines for the for the relay and so these socks like totally became a thing and those i mean they were like the cheapest thing ever i mean they're just <laughs> like costume socks but we wore those all the way through the 2018 Olympics. I think now they've since found some replacements because like they were getting holes in them and stuff. Fair. But literally like the day of that Pyeongchang uh, skate sprint, I'm like going back and finding pictures from 2013 when we won the gold because I'm going, 
okay, did I have the blue sock on my left leg or my right leg? Because whatever it was, that worked. So we got to do that again. Yeah, like we're repeating it. We have to repeat this. This is the socks. They're magic yeah. socks. That's amazing. Yeah. Gonna... What was so cool is that like we had we'd been doing face paint. We were one of like the first teams to do it. Like all the other European teams were super serious. So we did the face paint. We have the relay socks. And all of a sudden you started to see other teams start to kind of catch on like, whoa, these Americans are racing really fast must be the socks so um uh you started to see like teams back in the u.s putting on the socks now the men's team races in the socks as well it's just been, it's been quite a phenomenon <laughs> oh my gosh i love it as an avid fan of socks i did um my fifth year at stanford i wore i had fun sock fifth year is what i called it i had a pair of fun socks for every single day of lift being a barefoot sport it was a little bit tough to be able to like actually exercise my fun sock fifth year rights but um i was the only fifth year on the team so i had to do it so my strength coach like i walked into the first day of lift he's like what are you wearing right now i was like they're lucky charms socks they're it's fun sock fifth year come on he goes do you have a pair of socks for every day of the week i said i have uh, 16 pairs of fun socks and i will be wearing them on rotation thank you very much um and then he would rate my socks by the end of like with each time he's like these ones aren't as fun. He goes, I said, but in the category of what is a plain white or black sock, these are more fun than that. He goes, yes, agreed, but they're not as fun as your other ones. And I was like, okay, let's give a ranking system of where the socks are. So I was like, I hear the relay socks. I was like, this is incredible. I need to know the sock story. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's amazing how little little things like that, you know, they can either, you know, just be that little positive reminder that you need that while this is intense and you have big goals and you're working really hard and you're throwing your whole life into this, at the end of the day, you do this because it's fun. Um, and if you can bring that kind of lightness to it, I think that helps you be more successful. Totally. Finding the joy in the strain and the stress of sport is kind of like the most beautiful piece of it. I feel like it's why a lot of us athletes do what we do, but it's, sometimes it's hard to find it. Um, definitely in the more strenuous moments. Also, I have to ask too, with cross-country skiing, I tried running. I, I can't say that I've ever been a huge runner. I really want to, in theory, be a runner, but every time I try, um, I don't get the runner's high. I get the nice little, um, I want to stop this mindset. <laughs> Um, but I'm slowly getting better. I'm slowly able to work up my mileage. But I have to know, like, there's a huge piece of your sport in cross-country skiing and cross-country anything in general of, like, this aspect of pain in sport. Um, I know that you're talking about, like, bringing the fun moments in. Did that have any assistance or kind of how do you work with the idea of, like, your sport brings, like, pain in it? There's, like, some pain that comes with sport. Um, that's at a greater rate than other sports. There's a lot of us who like, once the adrenaline hits, there's no more pain. Just when you get off the court, your joints start to hurt. But there's like, there's a huge aspect of pain that comes into cross country. How do you like prepare? Like, what's your mindset going in? How do you prepare for a competition knowing that your competition actually will be painful innately? It's a great question. And something that <laughs> I, I have to laugh when I like, uh, have to, you know, talk to people about cross country skiing and you know, I often get the question like, why, why would anyone do that? I mean, the, the image people often see is us crossing the finish line and like literally laying on the ground with the chest heaving and, uh, which I'll tell you is, is quite painful, but the best feeling in the world. Oh yeah. Um, 
And so I think what, I mean, yeah, cross-country skiing is, it's one of the most cardiovascularly demanding sports in the world because you're using your entire body. You're using your legs, uh, you're using your arms, using your core. It's, um, it's endurance-based, but it's power-based. Um, and particularly as the events have gotten a little bit more sh- shorter and the, the equipment's gotten stiffer, now you actually have to produce more power, which creates more lactic acid, which can make it even more painful sometimes. But that's the reason why we train and prepare. Our training season would start May 1st, and we would be training all the way up until mid-November when our first races were starting. And we really continue to race or to train kind of through those first couple of months of racing because we know every day we train, it's like putting money in the bank. So then when you go to race, you have a lot to draw from. And because you've been kind of touching that discomfort zone almost every day, it's amazing how you can get comfortable with the discomfort. And so we would do a lot of interval training. So we would simulate the pace and the feeling that we would encounter in racing you know, sometimes we would we would push above and beyond that. Um, and it's amazing how as your body physically adapts to that, you know, it, it actually learns how to transport oxygen more efficiently. Uh, your muscles get snappier and stronger. Um, and you can sit in that zone where, you're, yes, you're very uncomfortable, but you, you're used to it. And um, that's where the self-talk becomes very important because you get into that zone and, you know, one part of your brain is starting to say, whoa, this feels hard. What are you doing? Um, and the other part just kind of calmly says like, yeah, but I've been here and I've done this and, and I, I can do it. Um, and I know if I do it, then I'm going to get the result that I want. I'm going to get that, that endorphin high, that rush um, for, you know, putting myself um, in this challenging situation. And so I think it's just something that you, that you kind of develop over time. And I, I really think it's a it's a nice marriage of your physical conditioning and your mental preparation that that makes it possible. Like the best races are are you know physical agony to the you know biggest thing I've ever experienced, but yet you're able to just kind of comfortably sit with it and and push through it, and then it is the best release when you cross that finish line, knowing that you've given everything. Um, and now that I don't train and race all the time, I miss it. Like my life is comfortable now, right? I don't have to go out and, and make myself hurt, but I miss it because I don't, I don't get the exhilaration from it. I don't like feel physically as agile and strong as I was. And so it's reminding me that like, I need to build some of that stuff back in because that's what makes me feel alive as a person. Oh, I love that. Um, I feel like this is like a very nice little pivot point. Something that we do with strong girls is trying to incorporate more mindset practices in with all of our girls. And a huge piece of that is we talk about every single day, write down three good things that happened. Like what are three good things that happened in your day? Because then it can shift a day that might have been a little bit crummy into something that's significantly more positive because you had at least three good things that happened. And so on the note of our three good things mindset practice, I would love to know your three favorite things about your sport specifically. Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I wholeheartedly believe in that practice. Um, that was something that I would write in my training log after a race. There was I had to start with three things that went well, and then I could write three things that I wanted to improve. But it was very important how you framed it. And it was amazing how it was it was really easy to come up with three things that I wanted to improve, but harder to come up with the three things sometimes of the things that went well. So in my sport, um, 
I think some of the things that I um, loved doing was on steep uphills. There's this technique we call jump skating. And so you're literally like jumping from foot to foot up the hill. Um, it's very energy demanding, but man, you can fly up and over a hill so fast. And that was always my strength in sprint racing. And so there were a few races when I just, I put my head down basically and just jump skated up the hill as hard as I could and was almost like so in my zone. I didn't know what was going on around me, but then going back and seeing the footage later, the, those were moments when I broke away from the pack because I think people come into a hill and their immediate reaction is, Oh, I, you know, I've, this is hard. I got to kind of pace myself. I got to conserve. And it was always a little bit risky to, to burn so much energy in those situations. But then because I was willing to take the risk, I got the advantage. Um, and there were times when that didn't work, but the times that it did were amazing. It was like, I took the risk uh, and it really paid off. So that jump skating up a hill is a really cool feeling. Um, you just, you feel like you're a little bit like you're just flying up the hill. So that's a favorite. Um, I also loved getting really strong in the weight room and it was like, you know, a progression over time. I would say I felt a difference. It was always like in these three week blocks, like the first week it would be hard. And then the second week it's like, okay, I'm starting to starting to get this. And by the third week you're like, okay, I'm handling this. I'm ready to jump up to the next. And um, towards like the end of my career, I could do pull-ups with 55 pounds hanging from my waist. And so I'd be in a weight room like in the New York City, you know, on, a, on like a sponsor trip. And I'd go in there and I'd find the weight and I'd put it around my waist and I'd go do a couple pull-ups with this. And then I'd walk away and then I'd like see some guys coming over like trying to do it. Um, and so that was, that was kind of a cool uh, um, benefit of the sport was just getting so strong. Um, so I love that part of it. And then the third and by far my most favorite was being out on these workouts with my friends. Um, just like, you know, we're flying along, you know, we're pushing each other and yet we're just, we're just talking and jumping and being silly. And I just, you know, I just, that's what sticks in my mind when I think back about my career is all the time I got to spend with my teammates and, the friends that I made also like from other countries, like some of my best friends are ones from Sweden, ones from Finland. Uh, they were my, you know, fierce competitors, um, you know, one from, from Canada. And yet we like are great friends because we're all similar people. We just happen to compete sometimes. And so that, that is definitely my favorite part. On course, you're the fiercest of enemies, but off the course, it's like, okay, great job. Hugs. Like at the end yep, of the day. Exactly. Yes, that's I think that that's one of my favorite pieces of being an athlete is like you're all so like minded. It's so tough to find that separation in moments too of where you're like, I just want to beat them so badly. But then off the court, dang, I love this human being <laughs> like that was, yeah. especially I feel like through my career, that's been a huge piece of it. My I had people tell me they're like, why are you hugging this girl after the game is over. You just played her in a game and you're giving her a big hug. I was like, that's my best friend across the net. Of course I'm going to give her a hug after the game. Um, that was one of my favorite pieces of sport as well. I love it. I feel like going into that and all of this, the pieces of sport, we've kind of talked a lot about what makes you you. And then I literally have one more main question in all of it. And you've touched on it piece by piece, but you've been a huge leader in sport. And I would love to know kind of 
leadership opportunities, how they've changed your perspective. I mean, you kind of working to build that U.S. women's team. What was it like kind of entering as a leader? How do you think it benefited you in sport? And then how do you think it's hopefully benefited the sport for the years to come now that you're removed? It has absolutely benefited me. Um, so what was interesting is in when I first made the World Cup team, like I said, I was the only U.S. woman and I started to have success. You know, I started, I won my first World Cup um, and then I won my first World Championship medal. And, uh, you know, I was excited. The U.S. ski team was excited. So by that point, you know, I was becoming kind of more of a veteran athlete. I was understanding what I needed to be successful. And it would have actually been easier if I had just stayed focused on myself because I could have dictated exactly where I wanted to training camps, what kind of training I wanted to do. But I kind of knew deep down that it was going to be more fun and it was going to be more productive to have teammates to do it with because, I, you know, I'm sitting in hotel rooms for months at a time in Europe and I don't want to do that by myself. So um, when I started to reach out to my competitors to come in together for training, that meant I had to make compromises. You know, I was living in Alaska, but maybe I had to fly down to Park City, Utah, where the U.S. ski team headquarters are to meet meet up with my teammates. Maybe I had to fly to New Zealand to ski in the, the southern hemisphere, you know, wintertime. Um, so I had to make compromises. And so did they. But I think we all benefited because of it. And so that was, I would think, a kind of a leadership choice because I could have focused on just what I wanted and hope that everybody else followed suit. Or I could be willing to say, hey, look, there's opportunities to to learn and to to do things different ways and being open to that. So I think that was an important conscious choice that I made that I'm so glad I did because um, I think it would have been pretty lonely otherwise. Um, the other leadership opportunities, um, I think, came from from being very curious about how the sport works and how to make it better. Like I've always kind of wanted to figure out, like, how, how can we do things better you know, how can we uh, how can we showcase our team? Um, and I ended up uh, taking a, a, an opportunity. I put my name forward to be elected as an athlete representative to our international governing body, which is the um, what they call FIS. Um, and that was a, a bit risky because it meant I was going to have to fly over to Europe in June to go to meetings when I should have, you know, normally I'd be going to training, focusing totally on training. But here I was going to get on a plane, fly halfway across the world to sit in meetings for a couple of days. But in doing so, I was going to get to represent the voice of the athletes to make sure that they were an important part of the decisions that were being made. So I put my name forward and uh, my fellow athletes elected me for that position. And I would fly over to those meetings and I would sit there. And it was so cool because I got to learn about how the sport actually works. It turns out, you know, athletes are one piece of it and a very important piece, but there's also, there's teams, there's sponsors, there's local organizers that all work together to make our sports possible. And so um, being a part of that uh, decision-making process and understanding it um, really gave me a lot of gratitude for the, the sport that I got to do um, because all these people believed in it and were making it happen. And so then I was less likely to complain about little things that weren't perfect because I realized that that too is a compromise to make it all work. But then it was also really cool to be able to come in and speak about the athlete's perspective. And we were able to, to um, make some big changes that benefited athletes. And then because I was in that position, then I got to go out and meet other athletes and talk about how, you know, what their feedback was, how they were thinking and feeling. And in doing so, 
I ended up making some more friends. And since I flew over for the meetings, well, I'm over here in Europe, I might as well go train somewhere. So I went up to Norway and trained. I went to Sweden and trained. And those, I think those experiences wouldn't have happened had I not taken the risk of, of going for this position. And so um, being a leader out, off the snow um, and representing the athletes, um, I ultimately ended up getting elected um, in Pyeongchang as a, the athlete representative to the International Olympic Committee as well. So I got to be work with other athletes in the International Olympic Committee to represent athletes worldwide. And that was incredible. But again, it took a risk of putting my name out there, of, of doing it, of, of flying to meetings all over the world. Um, but it's been so cool to be a part of actually how sports work. Oh, that's so cool. Getting the behind the scenes along with being in the scenes itself. Uh, it's such a fun aspect. Oh, thank you so much for having this conversation. Also, I just I feel like I need to say thank you like a hundred more times because not only am are you benefiting like everybody listening, but I'm getting to learn so much from this whole process. I think that my whole goal setting mindset is shifted just from this conversation. I'm so excited to keep working on my little to-do lists now. <laughs> so the last thing that I have here is something that we're doing with Strong Girls is, you know, um, a little bit through working and just kind of being present that our motto is strong bodies, kind hearts and unstoppable minds with Strong Girls. And something that we're doing with all of the athletes that we're talking to here is we're following the pillars of our nonprofit, asking just kind of how you guys follow that. So to start, how do you keep your body strong? I keep my body strong by taking care of it every day. Um, I think it's not about the gargantuan big things that you do. I think it's about the daily habits. And that is, uh, it's the physical aspect of moving your body, of challenging your body. Um, and then the other part of that is all the little things, getting enough sleep, uh, trying your best with nutrition. Um, and I don't think you have to do everything perfect every day, but if you do give it your best and you consistently get in stuff over time, that's how you create an incredibly strong body. I love it. Now, next up, how do you keep your heart kind? I think keeping the heart kind can actually be one of the more challenging things. Um, it's easy to go out and run up a hill as hard as you can, but days when you're feeling kind of down on yourself, that's when what I try to do is uh, if I feel myself starting to get a little negative, starting to doubt myself, I just literally stop and take a deep breath and I try to slow down the conversation in my mind and I start to be curious about it. And I look at each thing that my mind is saying or focusing on and I go, can I control that or can I not? Did I, did I approach something with the right intent and I just didn't get it right? Or did I, was I not true to my values? And I think when you start to slow down, you, you take all these things that your mind wants to say, but when you break it down, you realize that's not actually true. Um, when you focus on the things you can control and when you approach things with the right intent and you stay true to your values, then I think it always gives you a, a clear um, path forward and you can feel really good about, about your heart and yourself. Oh, yes. So beautiful. Oh my goodness. And I think the last up, last but definitely not the least on this list of how do you keep your mind unstoppable? I think keeping the mind unstoppable is is just I remind myself to never settle. 
because um, I think it can be easy when when you've accomplished something big because you're feeling pretty proud about that. But you kind of realize like it really wasn't about the actual thing. It was about the quest for the goal. It was about trying to get through a challenge. And so once you've reached one benchmark, then you just kind of, you know, take one breath in to, to pat yourself on the back that you that you made it through, but then you think about the next thing. And uh, one exercise I try to do is I try to think about, think a little ways into the future and go, what do I want my life to look like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? Like I'm going to envision, you know, like my, my perfect day, where am I at? Who am I with? What am I doing? And then I start to kind of build back from that and go, okay, what can I do now that's going to make that vision a reality? And I think constantly, um, you know, challenging ourselves to, to dream about the life that we, that we want to have and then doing the little things every day that we can. Um, I think that keeps our mind on unstoppable because we know, we kind of know where we're going. We know what we're working for. Um, and we're confident that we're getting there every day. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, Keegan, thank you so much for coming on and talking. I know it's so early for you right now. For people who are listening, it's completely black in the windows behind her because it is before the sunrise in Alaska right now. So thank you for taking the time this lovely morning for sitting in and chatting with me and really getting to show us just who you are and all the pieces that make you you. Well, my pleasure. I mean, I know I, I, I've always gained a lot of inspiration um, from hearing about how people approach their goals and, and all the things they do. And um, f- through some of the work I've done working with female athletes, I know that the power role model is super important. So, you know, it's great to be able to share my story. And I hope that everybody, you know, has found something in there they can relate to and, and is feeling empowered to go out because, man, the possibilities are limitless. Even if it comes down to just wearing sequin suspenders to have some fun in the moment. <laughs> exactly. That's what it's all about. Yes, all about it. Oh, well, for all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Charlie Ekstrom, and we are signing off. This podcast is sponsored by Strong Girls United, a nonprofit with a mission to empower girls to be strong, confident, and resilient through sports mentorship and mental health programming. Visit sgunitedfoundation.org to learn more on how you can get involved today.